past, in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Amen. The Gospel lesson is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, from verse 31. The Gospel of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Here ends the reading of the Gospel lesson. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Thank you, Rena, and uh, thank you, Nick. That was awesome. I'm thankful I get to be in a church with you. We're going to be reading Amos chapter 8 in your pew Bible. Uh, We're on page 1,429, if you want to follow there, or it'll be projected. We're going to read Amos 8, uh, the first seven verses, and then verse 11 and verse 12. Uh, Here is the word of God through the prophet Amos. This, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit, What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere, silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy. And do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain and the Sabbath be ended so that we can market wheat? Skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything that they have done. And then in verse 11, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send famine throughout the land. 
not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In the satirical uh, news site, The Onion had an article a couple years ago. I think we've got a slide. Uh, Woman, a leading authority on what shouldn't be in poor people's grocery carts. News, May 1st, 2014, Volume 50, Issue 17. Northampton, Massachusetts. With her remarkable ability to determine exactly how others should be allocating their limited resources for food... Local woman Carol Gaither is considered to be one of the foremost authorities on what poor people should and should not have in their grocery carts, sources said Thursday. As verified by multiple eyewitness reports from supermarkets across the Northampton area, the real estate agent and mother of three is capable of scanning the contents of any low-income person's basket and rapidly identifying those items which people like that don't need to be buying based on the product's nutrition and cost. Additionally, Gaither, 48, is widely regarded as a leading expert in determining which groceries they, sh- they would purchase instead if they had any common sense or restraint. Quote, There's no reason she should be loading up on those pricey TV dinners if she's getting the government to pay for it, Gaither told reporters at a local super stop and shop, training her prodigious faculties on a welfare recipient using a benefit card in front of her in the checkout line. If I I were on food stamps, I'd just buy two whole chickens and a bag of potatoes. You could feed a family for a week on that and still have money left over. All that junk she's buying... Loaded with sugar, too, said Gaither, identifying with uncanny speed another critical flaw in her fellow shopper's grocery selection. No wonder her kids are acting out like that. Despite her stature, Gaither has never shared her insights with any of these individuals, sources confirmed. The other day, I saw a woman who bought a box of name-brand Frosted Flakes because apparently the generic kind wasn't fancy enough for her, said Gaither, swiftly and decisively calculating that bagged cereal would have cost half as much. And guess who's going to be paying the difference in the end? But then again, what do you expect, Gaither added, making eye contact with the reporter. As noted by her acquaintances... Gaither's unrivaled expertise extends far beyond her appraisal of poor people's shopping lists. Indeed, sources confirmed that she is also nothing short of a savant on such matters as whether young children should be given electronic gizmos to play with instead of a book, what homeless individuals are doing with the spare change you give them, and what on earth would motivate somebody to go out in public like that. No matter where you go, It always seems like Carol has some amazing new piece of insight about people around her, said friend Gloria Ferris, who told reporters that she has often marveled at Gaither's abilities on trips to the mall, the movies, and especially in restaurants. Whether she's analyzing exactly how a parent should go about disciplining their child or methodically dissecting the laziness of obese people who ride around in motorized carts, Carol's on top of it. She just has a gift. 
I think we all know Carol Gaither. I think some of us probably are Carol Gaither. I think some of us are probably recovering Carol Gaithers. But how do you view the poor? That's good. Thank you. How do you view the poor? Do you sit in judgment on them? Or do you view them as people made in the image of God? That God has put you in solidarity with to whom you owe love and justice and mercy and respect and and generosity. Are you above them or are you beneath them? Do you look down on them or do you look up to them? The, The Hebrew prophet gives us a perspective that's very different from Carol Gaither of Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, Indeed, the way the Israelites viewed the poor, uh, he says, is going to be a direct window into the state of our souls uh, about how we're ultimately going to bring down the judgment of God in Israel's case because God was the God of the poor. So how do you view the poor? Uh, Israel's turning from God. Israel was the Old Testament church. Their turning away from God was summarized uh, in is in, in certain ways, God promises that Israel, in this case, was ripe for judgment like a basket of overripe fruit, a judgment that he spells uh, uh, later on in the chapter. But why? What's the evidence? What's, what's the window that shows where you are with God? And in Amos 8, that snapshot into the state of your soul is how you treat people who have fewer financial means or resources than you have. Uh, there are four questions that the text puts before us. A diagnostic, if you will, on where your soul is with God. First of all, do you plan with the interests of the poor in mind? Uh, or do you run them over? He talks in verse 4, he says, you trample the needy. That doesn't mean going out and identifying the people with the least financial and cultural and relational resources and saying, we're going to target them, and we're going to run them over. That's not what running over or trampling the needy means. Trampling the needy means that you just go about your business, your life, your family, your career in the ways that are best for you and your family, and those are the considerations you take into account. And if somebody gets in the way, you run them over. Uh, you know, you, you, because you just haven't taken them into account. It's not intentionally, you know, deliberately seeking harm on the poor. Not many people do that. But, but the sin in view here that was indicative that the people of God had lost their love of God and were no longer living in covenant with God, that they were no longer right with God, was that they weren't proactively taking into consideration what's best for those who are weakest and neediest among us. Um, Decisions were made, not in consultation with the poor. Decisions were made privately and presented to the poor. Uh, The poor were not central. They were peripheral. They were in the way. You set your agenda, you implement it without taking them into consideration. and you contrast that um, with a buyer on Fifth Avenue I read about. You know, uh, uh, you know where most of these clothes we wear come from. It's sweatshops in, in Southeast Asia crank out a lot of the name brand clothing that you and I wear every day that we go through very rapidly sometimes. And, and sadly, a lot of these clothes are made in, in, by, by people living and working in uh, very subpar 
conditions. Workers are often abused. They're treated and paid very poorly often. And so the question comes for Christians in the United States is how do we respond? And, and some have asked, hey, should we be boycotting companies that do business in Southeast Asia in these kinds of conditions? And, and global missions expert Paul Borthwick uh, posed just that question to a friend of his from Sri Lanka. And his friend from Sri Lanka actually discouraged boycotting the big clothing companies, but he gave this piece of advice that was very insightful. He said this. He said, please, Paul, tell people, especially tell your business people, to become executives for Nike and other multinational corporations that run these factories. In positions of leadership, see, they can bring Christian influence and compassion and justice and mercy into that environment. They can make rules about how factory workers are to be treated. They could turn whole villages to Jesus. And Borthwick shares what happened a few months later. He says this. He said, I shared this Sri Lankan friend's response with a church in New York City. And one fellow approached me after the service, and he said this. He said, that's a great idea. You know, I'm the representative buyer with a factory that we have in Madagascar, and I buy jeans from that factory, and I sell them on Fifth Avenue. And we buy jeans for a dollar apiece, and we sell them for $400. And maybe, maybe we could do something. And so this business person contacted his factory liaison in Madagascar, and he asked how much it would cost if the factory started paying for the school fees of the workers' children. And if they provided better housing and provided health care benefits and improved sanitation and gave the workers more reasonable hours. And the buyers, he was pursuing compassion for these workers. He was deliberately taking into consideration their concerns and their needs, even though he didn't see them or know them personally, because he was not wanting to run them over. And the buyer got a message back from the liaison, the factory in Madagascar, And the factory management said, we're very sorry, but such added benefits would quadruple the price for the jeans to $4 a pair. And so the buyer decided to authorize $4 a pair, thus making a smaller but still very good profit margin on designer jeans. And a Christian used his position of power to bring about compassion and justice for hundreds of poor people and their families. He was leveraging his position of power on behalf of the poor. Do we plan with their interests in mind, or do we run them over? First question. Second question in the diagnostic, diagnostic is, is, do we see the poor as people to get close to, or do we see them as a problem to be removed? In verse 4, Uh, God speaks through Amos and condemns them for, he says, they do away with the poor of the land. They push them out. They get them out of sight. They don't want them in their presence. I remember growing up in a a middle-class suburb uh, outside of Washington, D.C., and I remember the people on our street that had fewer financial resources than everybody else and how uh, nobody wanted to get close to them. They were the people who, they didn't take care of their houses the way they should. They didn't mow their, their lawn and take care of their shrubs the way they should. They didn't have the disposable income to be able to spend thousands of dollars on landscaping. They were working multiple jobs, so they didn't always have time to mow their grass. And yet, all we wanted was for them to move out and somebody better to move in. See, we were wanting to do away with the poor. We were wanting to get them out of the way. 
you know, there's one, there's a, a problem with homelessness concentrated in downtown St. Louis, and, and there's one homeless shelter downtown that has uh, kind of had some issues, some, some struggles where they kind of have an older model of sort of warehousing the homeless, not really providing the services to get them uh, 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 into better situations. And there have been a lot of legitimate concerns with, with things happening in what's now a residential neighborhood that really shouldn't be happening in a residential neighborhood. And so they're very legitimate concerns that, that have to be addressed. But, uh, you know, I read on message boards uh, um, comments from people in the neighborhood, and, and it would be hard to have, you know, somebody vomiting in your front yard, you know, that, or doing drugs or leaving needles in the playground where your child plays. Uh, but I read the comments. I hate it when churches drive in from the suburbs to hand out sandwiches to these people. It's like feeding the rats. They're not going to go away if you feed the rats. Woe to you who do away with the poor. They aren't rats. It's not a problem for vector control. God's saying, do you view the poor, people with fewer resources as you, as a problem to be removed? Do you want to do away with the poor of the land? Or do you view them as somebody to get close to, to draw close to, to, to invite into your life to develop friendships with? Third question, do you view the poor as a means or as an end? For the Israelites in verse 6 were buying the poor with silver. Uh, wealthy Israelites viewed people with fewer means as a, a, a means to an end, someone to be used, someone who was convenient, whose value could be objectified with a dollar number. The poor were their potential for productivity. Uh, do you view people? This applies not just to how you view the poor. This applies to your marriage. This applies to your friendships. This applies to all your relationships. Do you view those around you as people that you're using to meet your own needs? Or do you view them as an end in their own right that God has given to you as a gift to love, to cherish, to support, and to assist? How do you view them? As a means to use or as an end to be loved? quote from one woman, impoverished woman in Moldova in Eastern Europe. For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, and shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Notice in that. What she's saying, there's usually a big difference in the way middle-class American Christians describe poverty. When North American audiences talk about poverty, they tend to emphasize the lack of material things like food, money, clean water, medicine, housing. And yet when truly poor people uh, talk about their poverty, what they talk about, uh, they mention the material things, but they tend to focus on the sense of shame on the inferiority they feel, on the powerlessness they experience, on the humiliation they feel, the fear in which they live, the hopelessness that darkens their every thought, the social isolation they experience because everybody views them as a problem to be removed and not somebody to draw close to, the social isolation and the general lack of a voice 
You know, the poor don't just need handouts of money and material goods, although there's a, a place for that. They need relationships that will ennoble their lives with dignity and with trust. They need Christian women and Christian men and Christian families who will walk beside them in true friendship as equals in respect and honor, equality. Do you view those who are poor as a means or to an end? Jesus said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite the people who are going to pay you back, make you look good, and advance your career. He said, advance the poor, the sick, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. Are they a means or an end? Four questions. Do you plan with their interests in mind proactively, or do you run them over? Do you draw close to them, or are they a problem to get rid of? Do you view them as an end to be loved, or do you view them as a means to use? And fourth question is about integrity. Are you, in your life, in your career, in your way you deal with money and people, are you willing to deceive someone in order to advance your career, or do you function with absolute integrity? See, he says in verse 6, God condemns them for selling even the sweepings with the wheat. That means when they're bagging up the wheat to sell to poor working class sorts of people so they can make their bread. They're sweeping in with the wheat some of the sand or some of the dirt off of the ground, some of the, the roughage, the stuff that's not usable, in order to make a little extra money deceiving those who aren't going to know what's in the bottom of the sack of supposed grain or flour. This is when you're selling your used car and you don't disclose that the transmission has had problems. This is when you sell your house and you don't list on the disclosures that the basement has flooded. You see, if you get in that situation where you buy a house and the basement floods or you buy a a car and, and the transmission starts to go, you may be in a position where your privilege protects you because you may have access to lawyers. You may have access to financial resources. You may have parents or grandparents or, or, or neighbors or friends that you can call on to help you in that situation. But when you're poor, when you're elderly, when you don't speak the language, when you have very few resources, when you're sick, when you're frail, when you're disadvantaged and you have six kids living in the basement and it floods, you're homeless. When you are disadvantaged and you don't have resources and your transmission goes out, you have to walk or you lose your job. You know, it's always the poor with dishonest business practices, with lack of integrity, when people just shade things a little bit. It's always the poorest who are the victims of that because they don't have any privileges with which they can shield themselves. They always come out worse. The Bible calls this, the Bible calls this charity. Uh, not charity, but justice. Because charity, again, implies that doing good to the poor is optional. Uh, justice is the word that's used because justice means that you owe it to them. You owe it to them to draw close to them. You owe it to them to treat them as an end in their own right. You draw, you, you owe it to them to treat them with absolute integrity and to make your plans and your life career choices, even where you live, with their advantage in mind. And then to take personal responsibility, specifically as Christians, for the poor within the church. 
You see, if, if what you've been hearing in Amos so far has been a sort of social and cultural political agenda, telling you to like certain things on Facebook and sign up for certain kinds of legislation and support certain kinds of leaders, then you've been hearing it all wrong. Uh, there's certainly always political implications when you go to the voting booth. But what the focus is here is God was speaking to Israel He was speaking to his church, and he was saying, I want you as my church to become an alternative culture, different from the culture around you. The culture around you, it's going to be brutal. It's going to be unjust. And and yes, where there are victims, stand with them. But the priority here, the vision of God for his people is, I want you, my Israel, you, my church, to be different. I want you to be a people in which there are no poor people among you, in which those who are poor are given not a hand out, but a hand up, in which you are empowering one another and strengthening one another, in which somebody's mortgage can't get paid, and, and the church starts networking to pull together the money. Church in which you know, as, as it said in the book of Acts, there were no needy people among the early Christians because Christians would go and they'd sell a piece of land and they'd just hand it over to the church and say, church, I didn't really need this. And there are people among you who need it. Could you make sure this gets to the people who need it? And they'd sell the land and they'd take care of it. We can't fix the world. Jesus said, the poor will be always with you. And then he died on the cross in order to create a church, the family of God that would be what Israel failed to be, a place where there would be no needy people because we would have each other's back. Think of those early Christians persecuted, some of them crucified, some of them beheaded. They're taken from their families and imprisoned, losing their jobs, losing their whole social network, being turned out from their synagogues because of the name of Jesus. And all they had was one another. They were Christians that were hung upside down. They were Christians that were sewn into animal skins and thrown to wild animals to be torn apart. And all the Christians had was each other, and there were no needy people among them because they had each other. And Jesus died to create a church in which the church would take care of each other. The church is the context for this prophecy from God. Our brothers, our friends, creating an alternative culture in which the poor are strengthened and empowered and lifted up, in which those who are weakest and neediest among us are treasured the most highly. Robert Wilkin, in his book, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, tells the story of St. Lawrence. It was the middle of the third century There was a Christian leader named Lawrence who served as a deacon in the Church of Rome. According to tradition, Lawrence was in charge not only of holy things like communion chalices and candlesticks, but also the church's treasury and what we would today call its mercy fund. It's that little box that hangs on the back wall next to the double doors as you go out, the mercy box. That was his his job, where you give to the poor. And... uh, In Lawrence's day, public opinion had turned pretty harshly against the Christians. And so the prefect of the city uh, thought he would take advantage of that. And so he asked Lawrence to gather up and give him the wealth of the church. He wanted all the wealth that the Christian church had in Rome. And so Lawrence sent back a message. He said, 
I do not deny that the Christian church is rich and that no one in the world is richer, not even the emperor. I will bring forth all the precious things that belong to Christ, if only you will give me a little time to gather everything together. And the prefect agreed to give him time, and he dreamt of what he would do with all of the wealth. For three days, Deacon Lawrence ran about the city, collecting the church's treasures. But they were not the sort of treasures that the prefect was dreaming of. Instead, Lawrence walked through all the alleys and squares of Rome, and he gathered the church's real treasure, the poor, and he gathered up the disabled, and the blind, and the homeless, people with leprosy. People he gathered into the church that day included a man with two eyeless sockets, a disabled man with a broken knee, a man with one leg shorter than the other, and others with graver infirmities. And he wrote down their names, and he lined them up at the entrance to the church, and only then did he seek out the prefect to bring him to the church. These are the treasures of the Church of Christ, Lawrence declared, as he presented the ragged crowd to the astonished prefect. Their bodies may not be beautiful, he said, but within these vessels of clay, they bear all the treasures of God's grace. Jesus said, whatever you do, for the least of these little ones, you do for me. In that context, he was stressing. He said, whatever you do for, at one point, whatever you do for these brothers of mine, calling them brothers, talking about the church context, that that's our first priority is to take care of our fellow Christians, make sure that everybody in the church has a leg up in the world. It's the code for fellow followers of Jesus, that family responsibility that we have when you join this church. You're making a commitment not just to God, but to one another, to the church, to the body, to be a family together and to take responsibility for each other's needs. Sometimes struggle when I see our deacons really trying to help a family in need and and the resources are so limited. Uh, We're family. And Amos calls us to radical generosity, radical self-sacrifice for each other so that there would be no needy people in Israel, no needy people within the church. Because how you view the poor, it's a window into your soul. It tells you where you really are with the grace of God. It was the situation in the days of Amos, their, their lack of initiative on behalf of their weakest, uh, weakest members, Uh, taking advantage of them. It indicated that they didn't know God. They weren't in covenant, and judgment was coming. He talks about the Assyrian army and and how judgment's going to come, and when it comes, they're going to cry out to God and say, God, we need to hear from you. And he says there's going to be a famine, not of food and and water, but a famine of hearing the word of God, because God's saying, when you call out to me, you're not walking with me. You don't believe me. You don't trust me. You're not being changed by my grace. You're living like the nations around you. And when you cry out to me, he says, I'm not going to listen, and I'm not going to answer. You're going to be on your own because they've cut themselves off from the grace of God. See, it's possible to identify as a Christian and yet not really understand the grace of God on a deep level. See, the gospel says we're all impoverished. We're all debtors. 
You know, St. Francis said, you know, you know, we are all beggars. We are all homeless. Our righteous deeds are filthy rags. We have nothing to offer God but empty hands are, and our sin. And, and it's to people like us, spiritually penniless, spiritually bankrupt, that God then gives blessing. Blessed are those who are Poor in spirit, Jesus says. Blessed are those who spiritually are bankrupt and don't have any righteousness of their own. When you see Jesus coming to you and clothing you then with his righteousness, washing you, dying for you, that's, that's when you get grace, but you have to realize that you're bankrupt first in order to understand the riches that you're given. And when that sinks in, friends, it changes how you view people who have fewer financial resources than you. You can no longer judge them. Who are you to judge anybody? You got all your sin. You didn't have anything to do with your salvation. All the blessings you've been given were God's grace over against our sin. So you don't judge them. You look at somebody who's desperately poor and they can't pay their bills and you say, I know what it's like to have a debt that I cannot repay. And so you bond with them and you view yourselves as kin to them. They're just like me. We're the same. I know what it's like to be there. Think of the ways we judge the poor and bring those to the cross of Christ Bring them to Jesus as, as the sin that he's calling you to confess and be free from so that you can take that weight off your shoulders. Weigh all of that against the gospel of grace. You know, Robert Murray Machane, the Scottish pastor in the mid-1800s, he, he died at a really young age, and, and he preached one sermon based on Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where, where it says it's better to give than to receive. And some of his words as he pleads with his congregation 200 years ago are pretty powerful. He said this to them. He said, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine Jesus, And you pray to be made all over again in the image of Christ. And and if so, you must be like Jesus in giving. For though he was rich, the Bible says, yet for our sakes he became poor. And yet you give the objection, my money is my own. And he answers, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Second objection, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, You are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I'll give my good gifts to the angels instead. You are undeserving. But no, he left the 99. He came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Third objection, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same to you. Yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning even more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and to the poor and to the thankless and to the undeserving, for Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It's not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Do you have categories in your own mind of the worthy poor that you want to give to and the undeserving poor that you don't? Friends, let the gospel wash you of those categories, for we are all undeserving, and Christ gives it to us. I abuse God's grace every single day, every time I dishonor him in word, thought, and deed, and he keeps giving it to me, even though he knows what I'm going to do with it, because he loves me, and he loves you too, and it's the power of the, the grace of Jesus for you. Don't miss the grace of God. James warns, his readers in the New Testament, in the letter to James, he, he warns the Christians to not abuse the poor, to not treat them as second-class Christians or less important leaders of the church or less capable of leadership within the church because he says if you do that, it shows that your faith is dead, that it is not a saving faith and that you have believed in vain, because how you think about and treat the poor is a window into the degree to which you understand the gospel of Jesus for you. Because God is a God of the poor. He identifies throughout the Bible as the God of the poor. When I introduce myself, I've shared this, I say, hi, I'm Greg Johnson, I'm one of the pastors at Memorial Presbyterian Church, because that's the main way I introduce myself, because that's the main function in my public life. And you think how God introduces himself when he says, I am the one who executes justice for the oppressed, and who gives food to the hungry, and who sets free prisoners. Psalm 146. How that's who he is. That's how he self-identifies. When you look at the poor, you're looking at the face of your God. Jesus said, and what Rena read earlier, whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me. When you saw you know, the refugee and you let him in, you let me in. When you saw the poor person and you gave him food, you gave me food. Because we're supposed to see those who are weakest and neediest as see them as Jesus. That's what Jesus wants us to do. It's not to romanticize poverty. Poor people can be as manipulative and deceptive and deceitful as the rest of us. But Jesus identifies with them. I, you know, I think of how Jesus says, how many unknowingly have welcomed angels. Uh, or that's actually the apostle. And Jesus says, when you welcome the poor, you welcome me. And I think back to years ago when, uh, when there was a panhandler on my street. And they were really aggressive and they wouldn't take no for an answer. And I think they were high as a kite, too. But, um, um, but I remember just laying into them and telling them to get off my street that they weren't welcome here. And I look back on that with such shame now because I cursed Jesus and told Jesus to get off my block. It's shameful because he's the God of the poor. And that's exactly why Jesus rescued us. Because he is a God of the poor. And if you're here today and you are spiritually bankrupt, if you're here and you are physically bankrupt and you can't pay your bills and you don't know how you're going to get by and you got all these debts, friends, Jesus loves to open his house to the downcast and the downtrodden and invite them in to come to feast on the grace of God and invite you into his family. And if you're here and you're spiritually bankrupt and you know you're a horrible, rotten sinner, friends, you are very, the very people that Jesus has chosen to be part of his family. Jesus himself became uh, that, that poor person for our sake. Uh, in his book, uh, uh, Unapologetic, Francis Spuford writes this. He says, 
It's important to note that according to the world's standards, Jesus' death was not an obscure one. In the world's eyes, Jesus died like a migrant worker who suffocates in a freight container, like a garbage picker caught in a slide, like a child with an infected finger, like a beggar the bus reverses over, or, of course, like all those other slaves ever punished by crucifixion, a fate so low, said Cicero, that no well-bred person should ever even mention it. Some people ask nowadays what kind of a religion it is that chooses an instrument of torture, the cross, as its symbol. He says the answer is this, one that takes the existence of suffering seriously. At the cross, he writes, Jesus completely identifies with the agony of the migrant worker, the garbage picker, the unknown child, the beggar, the slave. For at the cross, he entered into our shame, the pain, the humiliation, and the hopelessness of our poverty. He did so willingly. He did so on purpose. He did it to pay off the debt that you and I could never repay. And he did it because he loved you in your spiritual poverty He cared more about helping you than he did about his own life. He's the God of the poor, and he dies with the poor in a poor man's death in order to create a community, an alternative culture in the church, a community that loves and honors the poor and lifts the poor out of shame and helplessness and gives everyone a hope and a future, a God who so identifies with the poor that he moves in to our neighborhood. The movie McFarland USA is based on the true story of a Caucasian football coach named Jim White and his family who accepted a job in 1987 in the poor, mainly Latino town of McFarland, California. Affectionately nicknamed Blanco, White, that's his name, and he was white, convinces the high school principal that many of the student-athletes are actually better suited for track. And there's an unfortunate incident, though, where Jim's 15-year-old daughter is, is injured when a group of punks assault the boys. And it leads Jim and his wife to look at other opportunities and consider a very generous offer from a prestigious high school in Palo Alto. The clip begins with Coach White speaking to one of his runners, uh, Thomas Vallis, in a grocery store parking lot. We got a picture of the conversation here, I think, if you could get that slide up. Uh, Yeah, there we go. Thomas uh, is feeling glum. Were you even going to tell us? Or were you going to watch us compete at state and then run off into the sunset with those country club kids? Were you even going to say adios, Blanco? Now, Thomas, listen to me. No, all right, I get it. We all get it. This is America, right? You got to go bigger. Find a nicer house. Better pay with better everything. Everyone's always going to go for the better everything. And that's why no one ever stays in McFarland unless they have to. Because there ain't nothing American dream about this place. In the very next scene, Coach White is in bed with his wife. You know feels like everything we've ever wanted, everything we ever talked about. You know, big house, financial security, great school for the kids, nice neighborhood, nice, safe neighborhood. Cheryl says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? The owner of the corner store was washing away blood from the parking lot when I drove by this morning. 
Yeah, but Jim, the owner of the store, has a name, and he's our friend. And you looked him in the eye two days ago, and you thanked him for everything he's done for us. I know, I know, but, but you were there. We were there. Julie was how close? This close. How could that not bother you? Of course it bothers me. But do you know how she got hurt? She got hurt because your team jumped out in front of her. They protected her like she was their family. You think she's going to find that in Palo Alto? It's your decision, okay? And I know it's hard. But please, don't just let this be about our safety. Coach White led McFarland High to nine more state titles over the next 14 years. All seven runners depicted in the film except one went on to attend college and succeed in their careers. Jim White retired from coaching in 2003, and he and his wife still live as the White family in the Latino town of McFarland, California. See, that's what it looks like to seek justice for the poor, to believe in the God of the poor, to teach your family God's heart for the poor. But there's more to it than that, because that is what God the Son did when he left the ultimate gated community in heaven, and he moved into the ghetto, he moved into the barrio to be neck and neck, shoulder and shoulder with us in the muck and the poverty and the shame and the violence of our civilization here on planet Earth. And he did it because he loved us. He did it to die to create a community in the church in which there is an alternative culture of love respect, and support for the least of these among us. Friends, the Lord be with you. And lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God.